If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. Uh, While you're turning there, the name Caesar Milan may sound familiar to many of you. He's the famous dog whisperer, widely known for his television series, Dog Whisperer with Caesar Milan. So Caesar is a dog, this is his title for himself, not mine. He's a dog behaviorist uh, based in Santa Clarita, California, and he goes around and people come to him for help with their aggressive and out-of-control dogs. And so he seeks to train the dogs how to no longer be aggressive and out of control. But here's the thing about the show. If you've ever seen the show, you'll notice that while he does spend time with the dogs, training the dogs, he spends most of the time training the people. He trains the human, the owner of the dog, to settle down, to calm down. To take the lead and be confident. Uh, In an episode that Amber and I watched recently, Caesar sat down one of his clients, an owner of an out-of-control dog, and he says, if you're nervous, you can't really communicate trust. And off he went, training this human, the owner, to be not nervous, to calm down, To be confident. Now, without taking the analogy too far, and without oversimplifying what Christians are called to do, I wonder if a lot of times we're like those owners of -of out-of-control dogs when it comes to our culture and the world and the political, social, and religious climate. And we go to God and we say, God, fix this. And God says, I'll spend more time with you. With that in mind, I would like to read Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 through 27. Now remember, Joseph has settled his family in Goshen. They, they were without food. We know the whole drama, the, the back and forth of going to get food. And eventually Joseph, through, uh, through the kindness of Pharaoh, settles his family in the land of Goshen. And so the family is taken care of. And we come to verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, so he's not a crook, he's not pocketing it himself. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money's gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, 
we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, and as for your little ones. And they said to Joseph, You jerk, I can't believe you did this. No, you saved our lives. You saved us. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. And this will be, we'll pick up more on this next week, but thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, at first glance, these verses about the dramatic dialogue and even the actions between the Egyptians and Joseph seem rather pointless. They seem to add nothing to the Joseph story. They seem to do nothing to move the story forward. There seems to be nothing in here that is absolutely essential to God's plan of redemption, As a matter of fact, it seems that without these verses that we just read, save for verse 27, that the story of Joseph would not be lacking anything. Why is this here? When after all, it's about the family and the redemption plan of God. But we know that all scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, which means that these verses aren't pointless, they're purposeful. They aren't expendable, they're essential. And they aren't outside the scope of God's plan of redemption, they're inside his plan of redemption. And perhaps uh, you had the title of today's message, which is Being a Christian in 2022. Perhaps you had that in mind as we were reading the passage and trying to discern where exactly this is going. And at first reading of this passage, it might lead you to think that the main point of this passage has to do with the famine. Right? We... Uh, We in 2022, like the Egyptians, were running out of money while we're running out of food and not able to buy food. And that's why this is here, to help us, to help us in this moment of time. And I think that this passage could be a help to us in that regard, but I don't think it's the main point of this sub-story in Joseph's drama. You may say, well, it's about submitting to the government. Joseph organized this tax structure which made Pharaoh the recipient of 20% of the people's grain, so we should be submissive to our government, and especially the government's tax system, even if our government is incompetent, unfair, and often irresponsible. And again, 
I think this passage perhaps could help in that regard, but I don't think it's the main thrust of the passage. The point of the passage, I believe, is to show us that Joseph treated the Egyptians with the same love and concern that he did for his own family. Let's unpack that. And we're going to spend some time just going through this. And at, and at the end, I'm going to give you kind of three things to walk away with uh, this morning. But the famine, foretold by God back in Genesis chapter 41, is indeed severe. And remember, God uh, foreshadowed this famine through the dream that Pharaoh had, which Joseph would eventually interpret. So the food is gone, the money is gone, and we're reminded while reading this passage that also long gone is the world that God created prior to the fall. We've got a famine, we've got people running out of money, we've got people, their very lives are at stake because of what's happening I just can't help but think this wasn't how things were supposed to go and God, uh, you can, this wasn't God's original design. There was a world in which it says in Genesis chapter 1, the ground produced vegetation and food never ran out. And here we are with this famine. Here we are in 2022. Things running out. But Adam's sin brought God's curse and one of God's curses to man was cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So now the new normal after Genesis chapter 3 and the new normal in Genesis chapter 47 is almost literally no pain, no grain. Forgive the cheesiness. And that's the setting in which Genesis 47 sits. The lives of the Egyptians are at stake. What are they going to do? What are they going to do with no money and no food? And when you first read this, you almost think, man, Joseph is kind of being that jerk, though. I mean, how dare he do what he does? But we need to know it was normal custom and even expected in the ancient world that you paid your way through life as long as you had something to pay, including your own liberty. And as a matter of fact, even the Israelites, when God gave the law, the Israelites would operate on this same principle as a nation. But God would add a plan of redemption uh, for them as well in Leviticus chapter 25. But the Egyptians spent all their money, and the famine was still going strong. So next on their list was, in order to get food, they've, they've got to find some way to get food, and the idea was with Joseph is you had to pay money. And Joseph works with the people, and he says, well, just let's, let's move on to your livestock. And that was kind of next on the list to sell their flocks and the livestock to Pharaoh in exchange for food. Now, flocks in the Bible were made up of sheep and goats, and they were a measure of wealth. So the more sheep and goats you had, the wealthier you were. So really what we see here when he says, when it says they gave up their flocks, um, among other things, we see that pretty much the wealth is gone. We get the sense that the situation is, is worse than living paycheck to paycheck. It's that there aren't any paychecks at all. And if there, aren't any, if there is any paycheck, there isn't enough money on those paychecks to live off of. Seems like it was worse that even a gallon of gas is more than the hourly wage in some states. So they sold their flocks, and they also sold their herds. Again, herds were made up of cattle, were a sign of wealth. 
But also on the list of things they sold was their donkeys. Donkeys were owned by the rich and poor alike. They were very necessary animals in the ancient times. They were the work animal. They were the, they were the semi-trucks of the ancient world. And so we see the Egyptians are without the normal means of transport, trade, and work. Life was hard. Eventually, they would have to sell themselves. But notice, with their land, they said. And also notice, this is the Egyptians' proposal to Joseph. This is not something Joseph said for them to do. They come to Joseph and say, why should we die, both we and our land, by us and our land, and we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. So the people come and say, what if we do this? If, if I gave up some of my land that I work off and I, and I give that to Pharaoh, would you give us food in return? And Joseph, of course, agrees. Now, Joseph is not being callous or unethical. And if, if you want proof of that, I want you to see how this actually turned out. Because they said, our, take all of our land, take ourselves, take it all, just give us food. But if you notice when we read, when the people sell themselves in their land to Pharaoh, and the new regulation is actually put into practice, Joseph lets the people keep 80% of their land and their grain for themselves. So this wasn't like a medieval Europe where serfs served as forced laborers who were required to work the land for an evil landlord and never got to see a dime of it. Joseph is making it work for the people You'd find few surf masters in those medieval times that gave the surf 80% of the profit. That's what Joseph is doing. Joseph is continuing to be the gracious, helpful servant we've seen from the very beginning. I don't think Joseph has changed here in his character. He never stopped serving the Egyptians. He's not taking the money for himself as we saw earlier. He's giving it to Pharaoh. He's not making deals under the table to advance his own prosperity. And again, we have to draw ourselves to what, how the people respond to this in verse 25. You have saved our lives. Which is exactly what Joseph said to his family. In chapter 47, verse 7, he says, God sent me to keep alive for you, many survivors. But it turns out Joseph wasn't only there for his family. After the family showed up and was taken care of, I mean, we could say, well, wasn't it time for the Egyptians to kind of just be put in the background? I mean, isn't it time for Joseph to say goodbye and good luck to these Egyptians? What, 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 further, what further obligation does he have to them? I mean, the Egyptians aren't the recipients of God's promise to Abraham, which is what this story is about. They're on the outside. Yet, because of Joseph's compassion for the Egyptians, Egyptian lives were spared as Victor Hamilton comments on this passage, he says, quote, Joseph is a non-discriminating savior. His concern for Egyptians is no less than his concern for his own family, end quote. I think that's the point of the story. And I think it's that simple. Now the title is being a Christian in 2022, so what does this have to do with being a Christian in 2022? We live in a world with many different camps, don't we? Actually, our individual, individualistic culture prides itself on being different. And often the idea is, if I'm different, if I can find where I'm different, I'm superior. 
And we're talking about things far deeper than the two camps of Marvel superheroes versus DC superheroes. Marvel wins. We're talking about something deeper than the Hawkeye camp versus the Cyclone camp, both of which are obviously inferior to the much more superior Cornhusker camp. But what about these camps? The woke camp, the atheist camp, the LGBTQ camp, the, depending on where you land, the Republican or Democrat camp, Maybe another camp that you would put yourself into. Maybe another camp where you say, man, if anybody found out that this is, this is my situation in life, I don't know if I could even go to church here. There's a lot of ways to divide people up. And we often try to find the ways in which we are different. Because, like, our human nature is, if I'm different, then I'm superior. So the message often goes. But I think, very foundationally, and again, not to oversimplify things, but I think the biblical way is to break down people into two camps. Sinners on their way to hell, and sinners on their way to heaven. And I think we need to consider that one of the ways we can honor God as a Christian in 2022 is to be a blessing, like Joseph was, to those outside of God's blessing of salvation, those on their way to hell. We should be a blessing to anyone who's destined for hell. God didn't demonstrate his love toward us so that we would cut it off from others. I think a core value of the Christian should be this. I think we should all be able to say, because Jesus rescued me from eternal hell, I will do good to those still destined for hell so that I might win some to Jesus. Now, here's the wrong version of this value. Jesus rescued me from that political party. Or Jesus rescued me from those who weren't raised like me, who don't dress like me, who don't share the same types of social media posts as me. I want to read at at this point, because I think think this passage, that the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 is helpful to us. And you can turn there if you'd like, otherwise just listen as I read it. In Luke chapter 18, I think this fits here. Uh, In Luke chapter 18, verses uh, 9 through 14, Jesus, it says in verse 9, this is Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He says he, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But notice, it wasn't just those who thought they were righteous, but it was those who thought they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector next to me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, there's a, there's a modern spiritual version of saying what the Pharisee said. You know, when the Pharisee said, I, uh, I got to thank you, I'm not like other men. There's, there's a modern way we say this, and it's this phrase. Maybe you've said it. But for the grace of God, so go I. Now, I'm not saying if you say that, you are unequivocally meaning that you're better than other people. But that's often the sort of things we say when we're really trying to say, I just think, God, I'm not like them. I just think, God, you can't identify me with that camp. And there is a sense we should be thankful for God saving us, but I think it's perhaps often contemptuous. Now, if you've been around this church for even a short length of time, you know that we believe the Bible is true and right and good. And we believe God when he says in his word that all have sinned and that the penalty for sin is eternal judgment in a tormenting hell apart from God forever. Forgive the redundancy. And you know that we believe that God in his great mercy and kindness came to earth as the man Jesus and lived a totally sinless life. That this Jesus was delivered up at the hands of sinful men to be crucified. And that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he bore the sin of sinners. He bore the wrath of God in the stead of hell-bound sinners. You know that we believe here at this church that Jesus was buried and rose again three days later and is right now at the right hand of God. And you know that we believe the Bible teaches and the gospel calls for repentance from sin, resting our faith in Jesus, and walking in newness of life. Yet, so many of us still identify ourselves and elevate ourselves based on how different we are, politically, socially, culturally, and religiously. But if we truly believe that our sins were and are offensive enough to God to send us an eternity to an eternity in hell, and that means we may have more in common with every single person alive than we think. Our commonality with all humans, all people, leads to charity. And it doesn't require us to surrender biblical convictions. Now I want to re- reinforce what Joseph did in chapter 47 with what I think we see in the New Testament. We'll go one right after the other. Uh, Galatians 6.10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he's obviously distinguishing things here. You've got the household of faith on the one hand, but you've got everyone on the other. And notice he doesn't say, do good to everyone, but then, you know, do something better. It's the same good. It's the same good. Not a different good, the same good. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. There's the church, and then here's the others, and to everyone. Do good. Again, not a different good. Do good. The good you would do to a fellow Christian, do to everyone. 1 Peter 3, 9 is the last one where Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 1 
property. This you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I think Joseph is an example to us of these verses. You and I are called to do good and be a blessing to those outside the gospel. No matter what camp they find themselves in or even even label themselves If they're outside the gospel, we're called to be a blessing and to do good, to bless those outside the gospel, no matter what camp they label themselves. If they label themselves as LGBTQ or an opposing political view or a gang member or a messy neighbor or whatever. Now this world may and Even our country increasingly does revile Christianity. This culture loudens its call almost daily for us Christians to surrender our biblical convictions. Our culture causes us hurt, it betrays us, criminalizes us, and ostracizes us. But I think we need to remember that at one time, no matter when you were saved, at one time you walked with all of them side by side, both of you, on your way to hell. God, in his mercy and grace and kindness, opened our eyes to see and believe the gospel. And he rescued us from that hell. But that in no way makes us superior. God alone is supreme. God alone is to be exalted. And as former hell-bound sinners, we should be drawn to those who are still hell-bound. Even if they land in a camp that we just think is atrocious. We share. We share. We share common, a common spiritual dilemma with everybody still on their way to hell. And we often share in the same common physical dilemma. As we see here in Genesis chapter 47, the Egyptians and the Israelites alike shared in the famine. And we share, everybody, we're all sharing the same thing. Right? Money's going out the door like super fast when you go to the grocery store. We're, that's, that's everybody. That's all of us. We're all in this human suffering together. We suffer through the flu and COVID and all that stuff. And we should note, I think even here, that Jesus himself, being sinless, ate with sinners. Now, yes, he he told them not to sin anymore, which, by the way, was his primary purpose. He came to preach to people to repent from their sin and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God was at hand. But Jesus did this through the avenue of doing good and being a blessing. Jesus ate with them and showed them the gospel. I think you and I tend to be out of balance. I tend to be out of balance. We tend to be all about telling people what's sinful but not so interested in sitting down with them for a meal. It's frightening. It's frightening, even in Luke 18, it's frightening to think that Jesus spoke the harshest words and reserved the hottest hell for the religious people who stood back and told everybody what they were doing wrong but wouldn't have a meal with a sinner. Pharisees labeled people based on their specific sin, like this tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like everybody else. And they labeled people based on the camp that they're in, if we can use that phrase over and over. 
and they built walls. And they considered some people just simply unworthy of a relationship with God, as if they were protecting God from that camp, from gross sinners. That's how they labeled people. Jesus labeled people based on their spiritual need, and that's what drew Jesus to them. In our fallenness and pride, and I share this with you, we remove charity and goodness and blessing from those destined to hell. Or if we are going to do good and be a blessing, we pick which ones are destined for hell that we think are more deserving of a relationship with God. But we must remember what we mentioned at the beginning the value, the model that, uh, not model, the value that we believe all Christians should have. Because Jesus rescued me from eternal hell, I will do good to those destined for hell with the hope that I might win some to Jesus. Now you're probably asking how. And I probably can't walk you down tons of different roads and say specifically how to be good to somebody. I mean, even just being neighborly. I mean, if you need a definition for neighborly, I'll probably share with you afterwards. We're not going to take the time to do that. But just being generally a generally good human, being good, showing goodness. But the question still is how. And so what I want to do is I want to leave you with three commonalities between sinners on their way to hell and sinners on their way to heaven. And I want these commonalities to motivate your doing good. And again, these are all without requiring the surrender of biblical convictions. As a matter of fact, each one of these should be biblical convictions. And so I'm going to leave you with uh, three commonalities between sinners on their way to heaven and sinners on their way to hell. Number one, we already mentioned this briefly, but the, the commonality of human suffering. The commonality of human suffering. Now, I don't think we need to spend too much time giving an explanation on this. As I was, we we all walk through inflation together. We all ride, We all walk through uh, or drive through rising gas prices together. We all watch the bank account dwindle. We all face COVID. We all face the loss of loved ones. So, if nothing else, just the commonality of human suffering should create some sense of empathy and sympathy towards those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. In fact, maybe, maybe we could even say that it might even be able to, it should even create more sympathy and compassion towards those who are destined for hell. Here's an example of what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. In those days, uh, this, just the, for, this is the feeding of the 4,000. It says, in those days when, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to him, Said, he said to his disciples, I have compassion on this crowd because they've been, with, they've been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. Jesus looks on the crowd and he notices they're without food and they're hungry. That's why he's compassionate. His compassion is warmed and flares up because they're hungry. And he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to go without food for several days. He's been through the suffering of being hungry. And so he goes to his disciples and he says in a very concerned tone, guys, these people, they don't have food. What are we going to do to help them? And if you read the gospel accounts together, you basically get the sense of here's what the disciples say. Yeah, just send them away. 
I mean, we don't, we don't have anything to help them. I mean, what, what are we going to do? Are we just going to make food appear in front of them? This after the feeding of the 5,000. The biggest problem with the disciples wasn't that they didn't have any cash. It's that they didn't have any compassion. So if nothing else, let the commonality of human suffering warm your compassion towards those who are destined for hell. But there's another commonality. The commonality of human sin. The commonality of human sin. I once heard a pastor give a message uh, on a Sunday morning uh, about the church and the LGBTQ community. He opened with sharing how some time ago he saw a comic that showed a little girl playing in the yard while her dad was cleaning, uh, changing the oil in his car. And as her dad was wrapping up the oil change, he accidentally spilt uh, the, the black, dirty oil onto the concrete and into the sun. And the little girl would eventually make her way over, and when she looked at the oil slick, which I'm sure you've all seen an oil slick, what it looks like, she came over and she saw the oil slick and she pointed at it and she says, she says, Daddy, somebody broke the rainbow. And the pastor then made this conclusion, which I think is 100% right. He said, quote, while I'm more than familiar that the rainbow represents gay pride, the truth is, if every one of us were rainbow, rainbows, we would all be broken, end quote. Every one of us, are a mess. We're sinful. That's you, that's me. Romans 3.23's phrase, for all have sinned, doesn't just describe your life prior to salvation. It describes your life. And the great news is, for a Christian, the wages of sin has been paid for. And so while we look forward to an, a sinless eternity, we still, sin is still here. You still sin. Can I get more than one amen on that? Amen, we do. The difference is we, by the power of the Spirit and in the grace shown to us by God the Father through Christ, we have been bought, we've been purchased, we've been adopted into his family. And we do endeavor, because of that, to live in obedience to God. And we do fight sin and struggle with sin. A person being on the outside of heaven is far more serious than being outside of your political camp or whatever camp. The commonality of human sin should warm our hearts to be compassionate towards those destined for hell. If you line up the sins of Christians on one side and the sin of non-Christians on the other, how much difference do you think there'll be between those two lists? I'm not saying yours personally or mine personally. We're sinners. But by the grace of God, we're on our way to heaven. Number three. The commonality of human significance. The commonality of human significance. And here we're talking about the image of God. The image of God in mankind. Now the image of God in man is, is often talked about, and we say it a lot, and it can be hard to really, really understand what it means to be made in the image of God, because we kind of just get Genesis chapter 1, we're made in the image of God, and then that's kind of it. It doesn't really explain much else beyond that. 
So we're kind of left to take what we know about God, take what we know about man from God's word, and, you know, kind of piece some things together. But nonetheless, you and I are made in the image of God. And the question is, is it only, is it only Christians who are made in the image of God? Isn't that the question? We'll talk about that. Because you and I need to reorient our hearts and minds to what is truly important. And an understanding of the image of God helps us know how we ought to live and walk towards outsiders in this world. Any conversation on the image of God must start with acknowledging that God did not create us because he needed us. God was not lonely. He did not have some void that he created mankind to fill. He created us, according to Isaiah chapter 43, he created us for his own glory. And our lives are important because we were created to glorify God. Here's what theologian Wayne Grudem says. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, we, we are important. Oh, this isn't, sorry, that was too soon. But Wayne Grudem says, and then the quote we'll get to, Wayne Grudem says, we are important because we are important to God himself. This tells us that for every human ever to live, there is no greater measure of importance and significance possible. We were created to glorify God. Every human being has the same purpose, to glorify God. And we find true happiness and joy in a relationship with God through Christ. And sin has greatly marred the image of God in man. But it's still there. And we know it's still there. Look at Genesis chapter 5. This is after the fall. This is after sin enters into the world. Okay, and and God says he created man, uh, verse 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now notice what it says about Adam. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. It's the exact same words that God used when he said he created a man in his own image. So the image of God continues to get passed down to every single person ever born. And now the Wayne Grudem quote, forgive me PowerPoint worker if I confused you on that, here's what he says. We must remember that even though the manifestations of the image of God have been distorted and diminished because of sin, fallen and sinful man still has the status of being in God's image. He goes on, this implies that every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin, illness, weakness, age, or any other disability, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. I'm reminded of a poor example of this in scripture. His name was Jonah. You might as well name him Zach Fisher at this point. Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, it's, it's at the very end. He's so mad that the Ninevites, that God showed mercy to the Ninevites. And God says to him, should I not pity Nineveh? That great city? Notice the word God used there. Should I not pity Nineveh? Man, if we only had time to tell you how horrific Nineveh and the Assyrians were. He says, he says, should I not have pity on Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? And there's also much cattle. 
With your own conscience open before God, do you think there's any place where God may say these very words to you? Do your interactions in life, in conversation, on social media, is it, is it a, are you a bully and a judge? Or are you inviting and helping? There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. And I'll say it again. Nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. Which means being a Christian in 2022 is about being a Christian. It's about living and being like Jesus. It means you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, but by the grace of God in Christ, we're on our way to heaven. Being a Christian in 2022, like any other time, means that you will be conflicted in your own heart, and you perhaps will have doubts in your own soul. And being a church in 2022 It means, yeah, we won't lay down our convictions founded on the sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word of God, but it also means we won't play the bully, but we'll do good to everyone. We'll bless those who revile us. We just sung as the first song this morning, and to God be the glory, the vilest, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment From Jesus, a pardon receives. And then we say, to God be the glory. But don't pick me as the missionary. So, because of God's love for us, we need to understand that God did not demonstrate his love for us so that we would cut off our love from others. And because Jesus has rescued us from eternal hell, We must resolve to do good to those destined for hell with the hope that we might win some to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, God, may it be true of me and my own arrogant, proud heart how quick I am to be the Pharisee, even in conversation with people at this church, and to say, yeah, man, I'm glad I'm not not over in that camp. And Lord, I'd dress it up. I'd dress, oh, but man, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be there, which is my way of saying I'm really glad I'm not over in that camp. Forgive me, our Lord. Help me be one who is doing good and blessing even the camps, however we label people or whatever, that are, seem to be so belligerent towards Christianity. There are people destined for hell. I, too, was one of those, Lord. But now I'm a sinner on my way to heaven, all by your grace. So help us to do good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.